from the Canon Institute, this is The Russia File, and I'm your host, Isabella Tabarovsky. 30 years ago, a million Russian-speaking immigrants arrived in Israel. Overnight, they increased Israel's population by 20% and became one of the largest Russian-speaking communities in the world outside the former Soviet Union. They have changed Israel profoundly. They're known in Israel collectively as the Rusim or the Russians, even though only a third of them are from Russia proper. Who are the Russian-speaking Israelis? What did their arrival signify for the country? What was their journey toward becoming Israelis? And how have they changed Israel as they embarked on this journey? To discuss these issues with me today are Mati Friedman, Ksenia Svitlova, and Yossi Klein-Halevi. Matty Friedman is an award-winning journalist and a contributor to the New York Times op-ed section. He was born in Toronto and is based in Jerusalem. His latest book, Spies of No Country, Secret Lives at the Birth of Israel, won numerous awards. His most recent essay, Israel's Russian Wave 30 Years Later, appeared in Mosaic magazine. Ksenia Svetlova is an Israeli journalist, scholar of the Middle East, and author. She was born in Moscow and grew up in Jerusalem. She served as a member of the Knesset with the Zionist Union Party, where she focused on foreign affairs, defense, and aliyah and absorption. She currently serves as a senior research fellow at the Institute for Policy and Strategy at the IDC Herzliya. Her book, Through the Middle East in High Heels, came out this year. Yossi Klein-Halevi is a senior fellow at the Shalom Hartman Institute in Jerusalem and a non-resident fellow at the Trends Think Tank in Abu Dhabi. He co-directs the Hartman Institute's Muslim Leadership Initiative, which teaches emerging young Muslim American leaders about Judaism, Jewish identity, and Israel. Yossi is an author of numerous award-winning books. His latest book, Letters to My Palestinian Neighbor, is a New York Times bestseller. He writes for the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, and the Los Angeles Times, among others. So thank you all so much for joining me today. And what I'd like to do is to start by asking each of you to say a few words about your connection to the Russian Aliyah or the Russian emigration. Aliyah, of course, is the Israeli term and concept. Obviously, we have Ksenia here who represents that wave, but both Yossi and Mati also have their own connections. First of all, thank you so much for having me. I uh, take a journalistic interest in the Russian immigration as someone who looks at Israeli society and tries to figure out what makes it tick. And you can't understand this place without understanding, you know, the million people who came here from the Soviet Union and really changed the way the country works and changed the meaning of the word Israeli. So I see it from a journalistic perspective, but I think my interest in the Russian immigration dates to my own arrival in Israel when I was 17. It was 1995. I came from Canada. I was just you know, a lone Canadian teenager. And I found myself arriving in the middle of the Russian wave in the 90s when you said immigration in Israel, what you meant was Russians. So all of the courses for new immigrants in the army were just Russians and, and me, one Canadian. The whole absorption bureaucracy was completely geared to absorbing a million people who'd come from the Soviet Union. And I was I was there with them and my peers were Russian speakers. And I've always felt kind of like an adopted son of the Russian immigration, even though I've, you know, I'm, I didn't come from Russia and I don't speak Russian. So I've always wanted an opportunity to delve deeper into that story and try to understand not, not really how people came, but how they've changed the country and how they've become Israeli. And that's what I had the opportunity to do with this essay. It was a wonderful essay. Yossi, tell us about your connections and your story. I can't think of my American Jewish identity, my later Israeli identity, my journalistic identity, separate from the Soviet Jewish experience. And for me, it's always going to be the Soviet 
experience rather than uh, than the Russian. I came of age as a uh, young Jew in New York in the 60s as an activist in the um, new movement, the movement that was founded in the mid-60s to, as we put it then, to save Soviet Jewry. That was the, the language of the movement. And uh, I think of myself in a way as the Soviet Jewry equivalent of a red diaper baby. I was 12 when I joined the Soviet Jewry movement, and I, I really grew up in it. I was, uh, in some ways, I was, I was the mascot of the Soviet Jewry movement. And uh, later on, as an Israeli, I, uh, I came of age in my Israeliness, uh, like Mati, I came a bit earlier. I came in the early 80s, but really came of age with the Russian uh, Aliyah. And uh, I was uh, in Eastern Europe uh, reporting when communism fell. And I went back to the Soviet Union in 1991, immediately after the fall of communism, and spent a month traveling and writing about the Jews in the immediate aftermath of the collapse of the Soviet Union. So for me, it's all of a whole. It's one piece. Professionally, Jewishly, my Israeliness, it's all entwined with, with this saga of Soviet Jewry. Thank you. And Ksenia, tell us your story. Well, my story begins in uh, Moscow. I think it was February 1990 when my mother decided uh, that we should go in one of the Saturdays to visit the VDNH, the main uh, exposition center, to attend the exposition about the Jewish life and Israel. It was a big thing. So uh, it was a huge, huge uh, exposition. And uh, we met, uh, I think, hundreds for sure, hundreds of people who was, they were thinking, but we were still not sure whether they should go or they not should go. But as for our family, my mother took the decision that we should make the Aliyah to immigrate to Israel immediately after. So it was the direct connection between things that we saw there and this kind of growing understanding that we should go, that we should leave. And she just came and said to us, uh, me and my grandmother one day, that, listen, I decided we should be going to Israel. And out of all countries that are still available, U.S. was not available. It is Israel because we are Jews. And I want for Xenia not to experience anti-Semitism, never in her life, because it was already, as you remember, you know, the Panets society and the expressions of rabid anti-Semitism that even us in Moscow experienced that. And uh, this is how the story begins. We arrived to Jerusalem in 1991. The choice was Jerusalem because my mom heard that Hebrew University is in Jerusalem and it's the best university available in Israel. And the Jewish mothers enroll uh, their kids to the college uh, when they are five or uh, six. Uh, so it's the same with Soviet, <laughs> Soviet mothers, uh, Jewish mothers. And uh, this is how we ended in Jerusalem. So here's where the journey begins. We arrived to Israel where we have absolutely no knowledge of what is Israel, what is Israeli society, how is it different from the society that we accustomed to when we grew up. And uh, it was a quite a shock, you know, so I can just make a comparison with landing to moon or March, you know, because I knew more about ancient and modern Egypt at the age of 14 than I knew about modern Israel. I simply had no picture in my head. Where is this place that I'm going to? And at the same time, cutting all ties that you have back home because you knew that you will never come back probably. So the perestroika had begun, but it was still very difficult. There were no direct flights. And yes, when we landed, it was 14 of August 1991. I will soon celebrate my 30 years in Israel. There was this understanding that we are never going back 
to Soviet Union because it was still Soviet Union. I never lived in Russia one day of my life. And how ironic it is that me, a Soviet Jew that became an Israeli, found out that for the rest of my life in Israel, I will be Russi. I will be Russia. I will be Russian. <laughs> okay, so, uh, but we'll, I guess we will touch on this later. Yeah, I mean, it is extremely ironic because I, of course, we emigrated in 89. We went to the United States. But that feeling that, first of all, suddenly you become a Russian. You were never a Russian back in the Soviet Union. You were always a Jew. These were separate categories because in Russia, it was not about your Judaism. It was not about religion. It was an ethnic categorization. And then suddenly you come to another country and they call you a Russian. It was very, very jarring. And that feeling you spoke about, I really very much relate to it. I was thinking about it a lot in the run-up to our conversation of how before the Soviet Union fell, when you left, you really felt that you're leaving for good, that you will never, because that was the rule, you never come back. And those scenes at the airport with relatives wailing and crying, and you realize at that point, it does something, I think, to you psychologically, because you realize that you can never go back. So the only direction you can look to is forward, is ahead. And that I think that that influences who you are. Matty, your piece in Mosaic about the Russian Aliyah, it was a very honest piece, and it very much felt like a tribute also to this uh, group. You'll see your response as well. But of course, throughout this period, these 30 years, and you write about it as well, the journey wasn't easy. So Xenia, maybe talk a little bit about the difficulties that you experienced as you worked to become an Israeli. And then I hope that everybody will jump in in, in how you've seen it yourselves. I have uh, written an essay actually about being an Israeli. What does it mean being an Israeli? Because it means different things to different people. I think, yes, uh, even within the same family. Some believe that as long as you have the Israeli citizenship, you get your the ID card in the Ben-Gurion. That's it, you know, so there is no way back. You are an Israeli. For others, I think that this process was different for youngsters. I uh, made uh, the Aliyah when I was 14. And I remember when we were growing up, some of my friends were asking me, so did you ever date an Israeli? We All of us were Israeli. Yes, but it was clear that the Israelis are those who were born in Israel. They are the Sabras, even if their families came from, I don't know, Morocco, or Iraq or Eastern Europe or U.S. just one generation ago. They're Israelis and we are not Israelis. And I was wondering at some point. So when one does actually becomes an Israeli and the question is sometimes never, because officially it doesn't matter what the stamp says, what the passport says, but it depends on your inner feeling. Either you grow accustomed to this land. Sitting on the ground in school, for me, it was like shocking, sitting on the ground. My grandmother taught me exactly the opposite. Never sit on the ground. <laughs> and uh, there on my first day in school, and it was a religious school in Jerusalem for girls, they told me, yes, sit on the ground, you know, just like sit there. Uh, like, well, what do I do? So this feeling of few small details, small details, the food that you like. Yeah, I find out that after almost three decades in Israel, most of the food that I cook to my family, I would not call it in Russian, you know, it's the Soviet cuisine, I don't know, some things that we used to eat in Soviet Union. Does it make me less Israeli or more Israeli? I don't know, but I do know that I do not have any other place on earth that I call home, okay? So I think that qualifies for feeling in Israeli, but you will be always reminded, and I'm constantly reminded because of the way I look, do not look particularly Israeli, okay? There are many different types of Israel. But uh, I immediately castigated as Russian. I didn't change my name. This was my choice. I felt that this is the name that my parents gave to me, my mother gave to me, so why should I change it? And there is always will have this kind of frictions with the supra-Israeli identity, which actually doesn't exist. 
because uh, again, you know, for different Israelis, it's different uh, experience. Yeah, so, and I do see people who feel that they are proud Israeli, 100% Israeli, but they live now in Canada, US, or Germany. And they feel that it does not uh, deprive them of this feeling of, you know, love and pride and care for their country as well. Anybody would like to jump in? I have a feeling that both Mati and Yossi will have something to say about this. I enjoyed reading Yossi's response to my essay because Yossi actually covered the arrival of the the first years of the of the wave when Ksenia comes in 91. I only came to Israel in 1995 and Yossi mentioned a few incredible human examples that show the difficulties that people had, and certainly in the early years, and continue to have economic difficulties and, and, and challenges of identity. People who always considered themselves Jewish, for example, coming to Israel and realizing that according to the strict interpretation of Jewish law, they weren't considered Jewish. So you'd have, you know, a husband whose mother was Jewish, so he has Jewish status according to the, you know, rabbinic bureaucracy here. But his wife, who also considered herself Jewish, but her mother wasn't, or her mother's mother wasn't, suddenly had a problem. So if you read Yossi's response to my essay, you get some of that friction in the early years. And I tried to look at the sweep of this thing over over 30 years, and I think there's no way to avoid concluding that this was an incredible success, both for the country and for the immigrants themselves, just their kind of ferocious adaptability and the way they just jump into the country and start wielding political power. Immediately, they were, they were in the Knesset, in some cases, before they could speak Hebrew. Uh, there were deputy mayors within a few years of the, of the immigration who couldn't speak Hebrew. And of course, Xenia was a member of Knesset. This kind of just really amazing understanding of the way local politics work and the ability to use the engines of the Israeli bureaucracy in order to absorb themselves. That's a key understanding. And so you can look at this as, as an incredible success, and that in some ways obscures the personal difficulties that, that are involved in any immigration. And I know this a bit as an immigrant myself, but it's never easy to lose your status in your home country, right? You're a functional adult in the home country, and then you come to a country where you're helpless. And sometimes your kids know more than you, and you realize that you're going to be a stranger forever if you're over a certain age. And that's crushing. And you can call it immigration, or you can call it aliyah, and give it a, you know, a fancy name. In Israel, we, we use the word aliyah, which means ascent. But that doesn't change the fact that it's really, really hard. And the fact that this wave overcomes these human difficulties, not in the second generation, which, which is what you'd expect of immigrants, right? You expect the kids to fit in, but the parents to wander in the desert. As the early Zionists would say, the generation of the desert, that doesn't happen with, with the Russian immigration to a large extent. It's in the first generation that they succeed. And within 30 years, which is the lifespan of a young person, our health system, just to give one example, relies to an incredible extent on Russian doctors and nurses. And the fact that many of the Russian doctors and nurses are now retiring because of the age that, that they came, they're now retiring. The health system has a real problem because the backbone of the health system is immigrants from the former Soviet Union. So the fact that that happens within 30 years is quite incredible. We can't forget the human difficulties, of course, which are real and, and continue to some extent. But I think that this has succeeded beyond anyone's reasonable expectations 30 years ago. One of the things that I loved about your piece, Mati, is that it wasn't only about the Russian Aliyah, it was actually about Israel. And uh, you had a line there about the elasticity 
of Israeli society and the ability of Israel to constantly absorb massive waves from outside and to be changed by those waves and yet to, in some profound sense, remain the same. And there is this constancy that one can see in Israeli identity. We have a continuity that goes back more than a century through incredible transformations. I mean, when I came in the early 80s, the Likud had just come to power, but we were still very much in the last throes of old socialist Israel, certainly culturally, and to uh, a lot large extent economically as well. Xenia, when I hear your story and I think about what it must have been like to come as a 14-year-old, that is such a difficult age anywhere. <laughs> to be 14, 15, it's the most awkward age. And then to have to uproot and readapt. Mati, you came, I think, a little bit older. You were 18 when you came to Israel? I was 17. 17. So I was 30 when I came. And that created a totally different dynamic. And I think if we look at the three of us, we'll see very different models professionally. Xenia became uh, completely Israeli in terms of uh, certainly your professional life, a Knesset member, journalist, think tank. You are totally grounded here. Mati, you've managed to really create a bilingual professional life. And I have really just been based, I live in Israel, I feel that I live fully as an Israeli, except for my professional life, which is almost completely abroad. And that's very strange. And it was even stranger in the 80s before the era of internet. It's much less awkward today. There's a certain sense in being able to live in one place and communicate with another place. Still, I feel that because I came to Israel relatively late in my life, I never fully immersed in learning how to write as well in Hebrews. And that's been very frustrating for me, but that's part of the immigrant experience. And it's an experience that I was privileged to have as an American because I was able to continuously go back and forth. And to have come, Xenia, when you did, with this sense of being cut off from your birthplace, on the one hand, you paid a very high price for that emotionally, I would imagine. On the other hand, professionally, it was, I think, very useful for you to just force you to be fully grounded here in Israel. It's interesting to think what the immigration would have looked like if it had happened now, because when people come in the early 90s, as both Isabella and Xenia said, there's no way back. That's it. The only way ahead is in your new country. And there's no Facebook, there's no Skype, there's no easy communication with the home country. It's gone. As far as you know, in 1991, you're never going to see it again. So you have to adapt. And immigrants who come here from North America didn't really think that way. They, were, they always kept one foot you know, back in the United States. I and mean, it's very hard to get good numbers on how many American Olim go back to the United States, but the numbers are, are very high, much higher than they are for immigrants from the former Soviet Union who really just shut the door and came here. And in 2020, it works very differently. And there are still immigrants coming, by the way, from, from Russia and the republics, the former Soviet republics. And, and it's a different kind of immigration. It works in a different way, in part because you can maintain communication with the home country. In many ways, you can continue to live there with part of your brain while physically being in Israel. That didn't exist in 1990, 1991. If it's okay, I would like to point out one that uh, exists between, and it's very significant, I think, uh, between the Aliyah from former Soviet Union, 
I really cannot really say that rationally, yeah, because I mean, like, come on, my husband is from <laughs> Azerbaijan. <laughs> when people call him uh, Russian, uh, he's like, okay, <laughs> hello. <laughs> yeah. For us, Isabella rightly said so in the beginning, the only perhaps attachment to Jewishness was through the ethnic connection, okay? Because it was written in the passport that we were Jews. My grandmother told me when I was six, and she didn't speak Yiddish or anything like this, especially after Holocaust, when she lost a part of her family and her father. She was completely atheist, but she told me when I was six, listen, you're a Jew, but if, if you are asked, you're not a Jew. If you're asked by somebody in school or anybody else, you're not a Jew. It was this kind of survival instinct versus the urge to tell you your kin who they are, okay? But what does it mean? The Jewish holidays meant nothing to us. And for many who live here, they still mean nothing. And I'm speaking to even the second generation, the children of my friends who grew up here, who are native-born Israelis. And I ask them, what is your favorite holiday? They will tell you the Novigod is the favorite holiday, the New Year's, okay? Unlike the Christmas, which we do not celebrate because we are not Christians, <laughs> but this Soviet creation of the New Year's detached of the religious symbolic is still the most important holidays for many of the second generations, the children of Olim. I think that for Israel, it was very hard to swallow because until then, the Jews who came, either even they were secular, they still had Jewish names. They looked like Jews. They had this one memory generation of what does it mean to be a Jew? And, you know, for us, it was the thing that it was written in our passport. I once had an argument with Saibarekat, the late Saibarekat, uh, the head of the negotiation uh, team of the Palestinian Autonomy, when he told me, listen, but Judaism is just a religion. If you change your religion, you will not be a Jew anymore, right? I told him, no, because when even if I grew up in atheistic Soviet Union, it was still written in passport of my family that we are Jews in the ethnic sense. And then here you come with all of the rabbinic bureaucracy, but also a lot of stigma and stereotypes among the general population on who the Jews actually are. And the Jewish component, I think it's much more powerful component of the Israeli identity than anything else. And while the Aliyah, as successful as it might be, and by the way, I have a little bit different opinion about that because yes, many people became successful. Thousands and thousands of other people were just thrown from the bus. My mother cleaned the apartments and uh, watched after the elderly till the last day when she could work. She did it for 20 years of her life left with no pension, without no pension rights or anything like this. Like her, there are hundreds of thousands. It's not just like 10,000 people that you can help them. It's the hundreds of thousands. So uh, unfortunately, I can see that in Israel of 2020, this being identified as Russian, it also simultaneously means that you are not a Jew. When somebody says you are Moroccan or you are Iranian or you're American, they do not put in the sense this idea of you might be not a Jew. When somebody says, ah, are you Russian? it immediately has some component of you might be not exactly a Jew, you might not exactly have your place even in this country, in this identity. Zenia, your story about your grandmother telling you at age six that you're a Jew, but don't tell anyone, in the Israeli context, is a very ironic metaphor, because in some sense, you're still hidden Jews here in Israel. And uh, anyone who knows the Russian community knows also how deeply felt 
their Jewishness is. But of course, it's expressed in, in very different ways. And one of the cruelties of Israeli reality is really the way in which the rabbinic establishment here, which is increasingly manipulated by, controlled by the ultra-Orthodox, has treated the Russian immigrants as stepchildren of the Jewish people, instead of throwing a wide open embrace of a long lost tribe that was almost permanently severed from the Jewish people. And to my mind, that was miraculously retrieved literally at the last moment. If this would have lasted another generation, we would have lost the Soviet Jews. And so there was this last minute uh, rescue of identity. I consider it really a spiritual rescue. And yet rather than celebrate it, we impose one problem, one restriction after another on ourselves. And there really is something about the Jewish capacity on the one hand to achieve unimagined victories and then to turn those victories into something small and diminished. You know, I want to add something also, Xenia, you were talking about your experience of um, anti-Semitism and how you were not to say that you were a Jew. I mean, this experience of anti-Semitism was so formative for Soviet Jews. And I understand, of course, that according to the Jewish law, you know, in Jewish law, they will say, well, we don't go by others' rules to determine who is a Jew. And yet you can't ignore the fact that for millions of people, this was the defining experience. This is how they found out that they were Jewish. I'm actually right now interviewing a bunch of refuseniks who were very, very famous in their time, who, Yossi, you would have been uh, fighting for and walking for and struggling for, and there'll be a piece about that. So, But each of them, each of those people who became heroes, right, who stood up and stared down the Soviet totalitarian system, their understanding of themselves as Jews began with this experience of anti-Semitism. With the family name of Rabinovich, yes, you are not a Jew. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And you can have a family name of Ivanov and be Jewish. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Exactly. I wanted to ask you, because Matty, you write about it, and Ksenia, you and I just talked about it just a couple of days ago, the link between Russian Israelis and the Mizrahim, or the Israelis that came from North Africa and the Middle East. It's a really interesting link. So I wonder if maybe someone, maybe Matty, you can tell us a little bit. Sure. Um, there's a great article written right before the big Russian wave hits Israel in the late 80s by a journalist named Amnon Danknev. It's an amazing article because it's so wrong, but it's wrong in a really interesting way. What he <laughs> says in this article, this is a very prominent journalist, and he says, you know, I can't wait for the Russians to come because they're going to save us from the Mizrahim. And by us, he means the left-wing elite of Israeli politics and culture, which is at the time almost entirely Ashkenazi. I guess we should say that in Israel, we use very broad generalizations to talk about our population, like Russians, right? Calling a million people who mostly don't come from Russia. We call them Russians. We call anyone who comes from the Islamic world Mizrahim, Easterners. And that includes French-speaking doctors from Tunisia and illiterate shepherds from Yemen, but we call them all Mizrahim, even in the third generation, right? There's still Mizrahim. And Ashkenazim refers to anyone who came to Israel from the Christian world, mostly Eastern Europe. Uh, so I'm Ashkenazi, and the grand rabbi of the Satmar Hasidim is also Ashkenazi. What 
you know, do we have to do with each other? Almost nothing, but we share this very broad generalization. So what Amandanko, this journalist, says is that he's very worried that the European country that the Zionist founders dreamed of is about to be swamped by Levantine Jews. After the state is founded, the manpower pool that's supposed to come to Israel is gone because they've been murdered by the Nazis. And instead, instead of Jews coming from Eastern Europe because there are very few Jews left, a wave comes from the Islamic world, mainly from the Arab world. And it changes the nature of the country in ways that the original Zionist elite doesn't like. And it becomes more religious. It becomes more Middle Eastern. The food is different. The culture is different. And many of the members of the original founding generation and their children don't like it. And by the way, still don't like it. So Amnon Dankna uh, says it's great that we're going to get a million Russians because these people are Ashkenazim. They're like us. They like classical music. They like science. Their children are well behaved. He actually writes this. You can read the article. And, you know, he says, Svetlana, Zhenya, come, please, we need you. We need you not because of our demographic war with the Arab world, we need you because of our demographic war with Mizrahim, which is very, very interesting. And it, it tells you something deep about Israeli society. And then the Russian wave hits Israel, and it turns out that things aren't quite so simple, and that in many ways, the immigrants are a lot closer to Mizrahim than to Ashkenazim. For example, they turn out not to have a real affinity for the political left. They don't. There was a surprise. There was a big surprise. <laughs> there was a big surprise. And, and, and the, vo- the voting patterns change over the 1990s. And there's initially a vote for Fritzhak Rabin and the Labour Party. But when the first Russian political parties are founded, they find it much easier to deal with the Israeli right, with Likud, than with, with the Labour Party. And, and today, the most prominent Russian speaking politicians are all affiliated with the right. Avigdor Lieberman has a party that's based on Russian votes that is an overtly right-wing party, although it is currently in opposition, which is interesting. And the two probably most influential Russian politicians of the moment are Zev Elkin and Yuli Edelstein, both of whom are members of Likud. That wasn't the way that Amnon Dankner thought it was going to and it was going to play out. Culturally speaking, the Russian immigrants don't end up living in affluent neighborhoods in North Tel Aviv. They initially end up in places like Ashdod and Afula on the Israeli periphery, where the Israelis who they meet, the Israeli kids who they go to high school with, are largely Mizrahim. And the Israeli culture that they first encounter is not the culture of the Ashkenazi elite. It's the culture of Mizrahim. And it's music that is Middle Eastern and an Israeli Judaism that's Middle Eastern. And that comes as a big shock, I think, to many of the new arrivals, just as many of the new arrivals came as a shock to Israelis. And there are interesting cultural expressions of that collision now. People who grew up speaking Russian who have an affinity for kind of a Mizrahi style of music or a Mizrahi style of Judaism. And in the piece, I mention a band, which I find fascinating, called Orgonit, which is like a rave band set up by a few Russian kids who grew up in Akko, which is a heavily Mizrahi and Arab city. And they do this Middle Eastern Russian <laughs> rave music, which is not at all what Amnon Danknell was expecting. There's a, a rich kind of vein of cultural inquiry there in the collision between people who came from the Soviet Union and Jews who'd come from the Middle East, and neither side expects the other. And yet something clicks in a very interesting way. I would just wanted to bring up in this regard a wonderful uh, painting of my friend, uh, a very talented painter, Zoya Cherkaski Nadi, and uh, she has this painting that is called Itzik, to show kind of a friction that used to exist and still exists between people who suddenly found themselves together in places like Yericho, where you have right now 
about in the southern Israel where you have 40% of authentic uh, residents of the city who are from Israeli region. Even some of them are from India, but they are still kind of Israeli. And the other 40% from the Soviet Union. And you have about 20% Ashkenazi and settlers and all of the rest. And um, the socialization indeed happens in this kind of uh, mix of cultures, intermarriages that are very, very common between the communities. So when you are looking at the names of the members of this group, then you find a lot of, you know, Marina Buzaglo, and you have uh, Alexandra Benlulu, and all of kind of names that indicate that these girls and their families probably went through socializing in these parts of Israel through their families, and now they became one. And you are, when if you are looking at the Israeli politics only through the lens of this uh, strife that is happening right now between Lieberman and Bibi, between Likud and Beteno, then you, you can think for a second, then you have this infighting ongoing all the time, everywhere. But indeed, it's not. It's really not the case. I think that people were just already like kind of accustomed one to each other, especially the Mizrahi and the Russian speakers, which uh, doesn't mean that there are no very difficult and root problems. So I want to actually to pick up on the conversation about politics, because I think it's very, very interesting. I think outside of Israel, outside observers often think that Russian speaking Israelis, particularly hard right, exceptionally so, and that they sort of have a thing for authoritarian figures. And uh, when I looked at the numbers, this is not actually what the numbers seem to bear out, that Russian-speaking Israelis don't necessarily vote much different from the rest of the of the Israelis. So I wonder if, uh, if you can comment on that. It's important, I think, for listeners who are outside Israel to know that when we say left and right in Israel, it doesn't mean what it means in the United States. And I think people often get into trouble when they kind of copy political terminology from one place to another. So on all of the red flag issues for Americans, almost the entire Israeli electorate is in the Democratic Party in terms of legalized abortion, state health care, tight gun control, all of the issues that really kind of animate American politics. Israelis are all more or less in the Democratic Party, by the way, including Netanyahu, who is a right wing leader believing in state health care in Israel isn't a left wing position. That's the position of the Likud party, which is a right-wing party. So when we say left and right in Israel, basically what we mean is your position toward the Arab world. If you think that compromises on Israel's part will help us make things better for ourselves, then that's a left-wing position. If you think that no compromise is really possible and that actually a conciliatory attitude on our part makes things worse, that is a right-wing position. And it matters much less what you think on all the other issues. So when you look at the polling information about the 1.5 generation of Israeli Russians, 1.5 generation meaning people who were born in the former Soviet Union came as children and grew up in Israel, you'll see that, and I mentioned this in the essay, that when asked, this is a a story done by two very interesting scholars, and it's referenced in the piece, um, that they're asked, should Israel withdraw from all occupied territories? That's like a big left-right question for Israelis, and only 17% say yes. So this is a poll of, of 1.5 generation Russian-Israelis. When they ask if religion and state should be separated, 84% said yes. 
that's a left-wing political position. So it doesn't break down quite as easily as one would think. They're asked about um, support for LGBT rights and about 84% say they support full civil rights for LGBT people. That's a left-wing position. Most of these people probably would vote for what we consider to be right-wing political parties. But because the breakdown is much more complicated here, it can't be easily categorized left and right by American terms. I hate when I hear that, you know, that that Russian Israelis have a, a sympathy for authoritarianism. That's, you know, that's completely wrong. And what they have is, or what they came with was an attitude that's very suspicious of totalitarian regimes, very maybe suspicious of anything that smells like socialism, like the Labour Party, for example, you know, an affinity for, you know, free market, more free market freedom. And I think it's uh, a disservice to them, I think, to kind of call them all all right wing. That's certainly not true in, in American terms. And it's not really true in Israeli terms, either, even if they end up mainly voting for parties that are affiliated with the Israeli right. Mati mentioned earlier that uh, Russians voted uh, heavily for Yitzhak Rabin in 1992. They also voted heavily for Ehud Barak when he ran as head of labor in 1999. But then something happened, not just to the Russians, but to all of us. And that was the second intifada beginning in the year 2000, which destroyed the credibility of the peace process and pushed all of Israeli society to the right. If you were right, you became very right. If you were center right, you became hard right. I mean, this was the movement. You know, I want to ask you, Ksenia, what is the Russian-speaking Israelis' attitude or relationship with Russia? Because we see it in the U.S. as well. Over the last few years, the Kremlin has been very actively trying to reach out to Russian speakers all around the world. And there are groups such as Satyachistvaniki compatriots. The idea is that all of the Russian-speaking communities somehow share something in common and affinity for the Russian language and the Russian culture. They want to bring these millions of Russian speakers to a pro-Russian point of view. And uh, what do you see that's happening here in this regard? I personally, I have to say, I find these efforts, I have sort of a negative reaction toward that because as we were talking about having left in the way in which we left when we were deprived of our citizenship, Obviously, after the experience of anti-Semitism, the terrible experience of actually feeling humiliated as you are leaving, for me to hear these advances and to say, well, you're our compatriot now, I just reject it outright. How are the Russian-speaking Israelis reacting to these kinds of advances? I agree with you, Isabella, because I do think that uh, the attempts of basically spread some of the soft power, some of the Russian soft power here, and to unite uh, perhaps those who made Aliyah from former Soviet Union uh, with the rest of the Russian speakers in Russia and uh, so on, I think uh, they are fruitless attempts, frankly speaking. I think the most uh, blatant example of that was during the campaign of Netanyahu in 2019, also right now in 2020, which was called the Different League. The Different League, uh, meaning that he is able to meet international leaders and have uh, one-on-one conversations with them. And there he, there were posters, huge posters of Netanyahu with Trump, Narendra Modi, and with Vladimir Putin. So the antagonism that was bursting from the Russian language networks here on Facebook, on media, and so on, it was unimaginable. People <laughs> do not want Israel to become affiliated with uh, Putin's Russian. Even if they enjoy traveling there, because our ex-homes are there, places that we love are there, people that we love are still there. We enjoy going there. 
Sometimes we do business with Russia, which is all great. There is also this understanding that we need to have good relations, solid relations with Russia, because this is the guarantor for right now of our freedom of operation in the Syrian skies. It depends solely on Moscow. I think people understand this. But since the majority of those who came from former Soviet Union, they're actually not from Russia. And those who came from Russia, the majority of them do not have favorable view of what Russia is today. They wouldn't want to live there. They wouldn't want for their children to come back to live there. And they wouldn't want Israel to become part of the, this pro-Russian alliance. Good relations and stable relations with Russia, yes, but not to the extent that uh, the Russians would want it to have. And there is a lot of vivid discussion about this traditional Soviet-Russian symbols, for example, of the Victory Victor Day, the parade of the 9th of May, and so on. So I think that the majority of those, and the majority actually supports, supports the parades and supports for the celebration to stay on the day that we, we were used to. Our grandfathers and grandmothers used to celebrate it on the 9th of May. We do not go as deep as why it was set on the 9th of May and not on 8th. It was Stalin's decision and so on. It's all known. But I think there is this attempt to make this holiday an Israeli holiday, which, I mean, we do not celebrate the Russian state holiday here. We celebrate something that officially by law also became an Israeli holiday. Yes, Russia is involved. It was also, I think, involved in the legislation that eventually took place in the Knesset. It certainly supports this kind of parades and other displays of affiliation with our beloved symbols of our past. But I don't think that the Russian Israelis are buying into it. And the efforts, first of all, they are very modest efforts. I didn't see for now any like grand massive attack of the, I don't know, uh, the Russian uh, cultural center or the embassy on uh, the masses who live here. There are almost one million people, I think less now than a million, but still something of this stage. So, yeah, they are doing something, some activities. Some people who live in Tel Aviv visited, mostly Russians who live here journalists and so on, they take place in these activities. I do not see that they are succeeding to bring in the masses. And I would say, as far as I understand it, in Israel, basically, the kind of the welcoming of the May 9th celebration has to do with the fact that, in fact, there were half a million Jews who fought in the Red Army. Some of them ended up here and they are proud of what they've done in saving the world from Nazism. And so it's an attempt to honor these individuals. It's not that kind of highly politicized holiday that it's become in Russia. And we've spoken on this podcast about that a couple of times. So it's uh, what you're saying, if I understand it correctly, is that it doesn't have a political nature here. It's more about honoring the individuals who fought. Is that correct? Yes, absolutely. Every family that lives here that came from former Soviet Union, everyone has some kind of a war story. My own grandmother used to be a military doctor and she was in Stalingrad in 41, 42. You understand what it means, of course. Every family has somebody who was left there, a soldier who fought and died. So, or somebody who lived through this war and, for example, liberated the camps. So, of course, we were very surprised to find out that Israeli narrative does not include this war, the Jewish participation in this war. I think it's a shame, actually. Yes, it's a shame that modern Israel was not able, and it's, we are talking 30 years later already, to embrace this story and to make it part of the Israeli pantheon of Israeli Jewish history. I'm uh, very much disappointed that in the school of my twins, they are 12 years old today, not one time, and I spoke to the management, believe me, I did, they uh, succeeded to have some kind of study or at least explain in half an hour of study to the students what actually happened in this war, that the Jews were not only slaughtered, but they were also 
fighters, they were heroes. And the participation of the Russian Jews, of the Soviet Jews in this war, it was outstanding. The Soviet soldiers who liberated Budapest and Vienna and Berlin and put the, the flag on the Reichstag, at least some part of them were Jewish. I mean, so they're heroes of the World War II. Every time that uh, I hear voices that, well, you are playing into the hands of the Russians. I mean, sorry, but this is my history as well. Because in uh, Russia, they have certain kinds of military parades where they threaten Eastern Europe and other places. It doesn't mean that I should not be celebrating the victory of my kin, including my grandmother on the Nazi Germany. I want to wrap up, since we're talking about Victory Day and this holiday that uh, the Russian-speaking Israelis brought into Israel, I want to kind of wrap up on the note about holidays in general. Mati, you mentioned Novigod. We talked a little bit about Novigod. Tell us about how that holiday, for you as a non-Russian-speaking Israeli, how you viewed, how it appeared, how it became part of the Israeli culture. The Novigod story is a great one, and I tell it in the in the essay because it says so much about what has happened, not just with this immigration, but in Israel in general. So I had never heard of Novigod until a few years ago, like most Israelis. And I think the first time I, I really understood what Novigod was, was in 2016 when a few activists from Generation 1.5, these kind of in-between, very Israeli, but also kind of rooted Russian Israelis, started a campaign called Novigod Israeli, an Israeli Novigod. And then suddenly there, people were talking about Novigod and there were kind of funny videos on YouTube about Novigod. And I decided to find out what Novigod is. So it turns out if you speak to basically anyone who came here from the former Soviet Union, the holiday that they love most is Novigod, which is celebrated on December 31st. And it was celebrated until a few years ago behind closed doors. People made a decision to play it down. Why? Because to Jewish eyes, it seems suspiciously like Christmas. There is a decorated evergreen tree. There, there are some Santa hats involved. There's a character named Dead Moro's Grandpa Frost who has a white beard and brings presents. But it's not Christmas. But it's hard to see that if you're if what you know about you know holidays in December is Christmas. And because there were, as Ksenia noted, there were all there were these biases or suspicions about these immigrants that they weren't really Jews. People realized that this was problematic and that this holiday was best maybe celebrated behind closed doors. And, and when, when the wave of immigration hits, and, and to some extent today, tragically, because of our calcified medieval rabbinic establishment, you know, these suspicions about the Judaism of Russian Israelis it persist. And Novi God kind of fell victim to that. And in 2016, a group of these activists who are doing their best to make Russianness a kind of Israeliness or to make it legitimate to be a Russian Israeli. And I write about one of the main characters in that movement. In the piece, her name's Alex Reef, and she's kind of a cultural entrepreneur who pops up in every possible context. When you look into Generation 1.5, they decide to make Novi God an Israeli holiday. And there's a precedent for it with the holiday of Mimuna, which is specifically a North African Jewish holiday associated here with Moroccans. They celebrate it on the last day of Passover when you are allowed after the holiday ends to eat leavened bread. They have a holiday called Mimuna where they eat very sweet pastries and there are a whole, a whole list of traditions associated with it. And that holiday, Mimuna, has gone from being just a niche 
Moroccan thing to being nationally known. So not everyone celebrates Mimuna, but everyone knows about Mimuna and everyone wants to be invited to a Mimuna party and everyone knows what you say on Mimuna. The traditional greeting is Tirbahu Vetis Adu. That's everyone knows that and politicians go to Mimuna celebrations and have themselves photographed in traditional Moroccan dress. And the attempt, I think the Novigod project was an attempt to make Novigod the Russian version of that, to say this is not Christmas, this is not a religious holiday. And they encouraged Russian Israelis to open their doors on Novigod and invite their native-born Israeli friends over to celebrate the holiday. And they, they talk about the cuisine. There are certain dishes. I mean, Ksenia would obviously be more qualified to talk about this than I would. But uh, there are these specific dishes that you eat on Ovigod, like Selyod Kapochu Boy, which I'm probably mispronouncing, but it means herring in a fur Perfect, coat. Pronunci- perfect uh, pronunciation. <laughs> thank you very much. I worked on it uh, for weeks. Uh, <laughs> a lot of the food involves may- mayonnaise. And uh, you know, they kind of had fun with it. And they said, this is a fun holiday. It's a way of celebrating the New Year's, let's call it, you know, Novigod, let's uh, celebrate this part of the Israeli population. And I, of course, think that that's a great idea. I'll tell you, Novigod is my daughter's favorite holiday. <laughs> <laughs> and this is, this is where I learned about Novigod. Her closest friend is still the little girl who showed up in first grade with a big white bow, Leah. <laughs> And Leah introduced her to Novigod, and my daughter, Moria, fell in love with a holiday that has nothing to do with anyone trying to kill the Jewish people. And she just thought, this is just the greatest holiday, you know? And so <laughs> it's a she... a civilian holiday, yes. It's yes, a yes, holiday. yeah. And so mm-hmm. she really has adopted Novigod as her most beloved day of the year. Just to give you an anecdotal story like that, I worked last year in a shared workspace in Jerusalem. Jerusalem is, of course, not a city renowned for religious tolerance and uh, and openness. But um, one of the young women who ran this shared workspace in downtown Jerusalem put Novigod tree in the window. Now, it's a small evergreen that's decorated. And if you don't know it's a Novigod tree, you'd think it was a different kind of decorated evergreen that you display in December. And no one seemed to comment. I mean, people seemed happy to have a tree. It's very pretty. It looks really nice in the winter. It was not an issue. This was last year, 2019, and people knew, including the, I would say, I don't know if mainly religious people who work in this place, but there were a lot of religious people. People seemed to understand that it was Novigod, and no one seemed to respond with this antagonism that would have been true 20 years ago. There were stories about so no, I think story every year, and it still goes on. I mean, uh, it doesn't go away. It happens in uh, perhaps places where there's uh, attention, you know, like Arad, mm. uh, when there is uh, controversial uh, relations between the ultra-Orthodox society and the uh, Secular people who live there. In Ashdod, a lot of the tension is going on there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in general, I can tell you that those who celebrate Novigod, they are, they are very, very touchy and feely about being congratulated on the January 1st. Because, for example, the Ethiopian Jews are being congratulated officially in the radio, in the Russian bed, in the sixth day. And Mimuna, it goes without saying. Novigod, the Israeli politicians still, they sometimes make these advances in order to win the vote, but it is still not something official. Mati, if you ever want to go into Israeli politics, you now have a good tip of how to appeal to the Russian base. That doesn't sound like it would involve too much suffering if I had to go to a Novigod party every year. But I think these things do take time. And if we look at the Moroccans, before Mimuna becomes really a mainstream holiday, we're talking about 
50 years, maybe even maybe even more. So I guess we'll have to look at Israeli society in 20, 30 years and see where things stand. But as an observer of Israeli society, the trend here does seem to be tentatively, and of course, with all due qualification, it does seem to be moving in the right direction. Well, thank you all so much. I can't think of a better way to conclude this conversation than the conversation about Novigod and herring in the fur coat. So thank you all so much. And to be continued offline and online. The Russia File podcast is a product of the Kennan Institute at the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars in Washington, D.C., and is a companion of Kennan Institute's Russia File blog. The mission of the Kennan Institute and Russia File is to improve America's understanding of Russia and the broader region. For more of our analysis of Russia, Ukraine, and Eurasia, and to read our blog, please follow us on Twitter at Kennan Institute, on Facebook at Kennan.Institute, or visit our site, wilsoncenter.org slash Thank you.